episode 376 of the Cyber Law Podcast, brought to you by Steptoe & Johnson. We're lawyers talking technology, security, privacy, and government, and the views we're about to express do not reflect the opinions of our institutions, our firm, our clients, our friends, our family, our pets, maybe not even our own three weeks from today. Uh, Joining me for the News Roundup, uh, Adam Kandub, uh, professor of law at Michigan State and also a senior fellow at the Center for Renewing America. Nick Weaver, lecturer in computer science at UC Berkeley. Maury Shank, who's a London-based lawyer and technologist. And I'm Stuart Baker, formerly with NSA and DHS and the host of today's program. Let's go first, because I think it's the biggest story, and because we haven't talked to him in months, to Nick Weaver. Right? Uh, Nick, the big stories of the week are all crypto crackdowns. China banning cryptocurrency, the U.S. Treasury taking action against crypto forums. What do you think is the most significant act that, that we saw, and what are the consequences? Well, there are two separate areas. So China is focusing on getting rid of economic asbestos, while the U.S. is focused on ransomware payments. Let's start with ransomware first, because we're in the U.S., and so we talk about U.S. stuff first. So this is basically two things. One is targeting a specific cryptocurrency exchange that's in Eastern Europe, effectively Russian, with sanctions for being the key, a key processor of ransomware payments. And that's because ransomware has a problem. If you want to extort $5 million from, say, Colonial Pipe or a agricultural co-op, you need payment. And bank transfers would be blocked, that no bank would be willing to take the ex- existential risk involved in fac- knowingly facilitating this. Cash is also out because $5 million is two roller suitcases full of cash. Oh, and oh, when you have to pick it up, you have to worry about a 308 gift from the Marines at high velocity. So that means cryptocurrency is the only game in town. Now, cryptocurrency is pretty easy to move internally and to launder through multiple steps, but it does not work well for cash out. You have to turn it into actual money. And so this generally requires a cooperative cryptocurrency exchange that looks to turn it into actual cash. And this cryptocurrency exchange seems to be the corrupt of the corrupt, where a huge fraction is just not the gambling, but just cash out of Russian money. I think the, I think the government said about 40%. Yeah. So estimates of 40%, and who knows, it may be higher because there's no useful economic value in the space. The other thing that the U.S. government did is a convenient reminder that if you pay a sanctioned entity, even if you don't know they were a sanctioned entity, you are in potential legal trouble. And since one of the big things that happens in the cryptocurrencies or in the ransomware space is you have negotiators and a ransomware negotiator is really more of a ransomware facilitator. Their job is to ease all the hassles involved in actually paying off the ransom and negotiate it down. 
And one of these things these companies provide is nudge, nudge, wink, wink, pinky swear, this particular ransomware gang isn't a sanctioned entity. So Nick, I'm going to interrupt you on that because I think it's more complicated than that. In fact, the best of them, because they make only a little money from any one uh, ransomware payer, are very nervous about the risk of making a payment to somebody who actually is covered uh, uh, by a sanctions program. But yeah, there, there clearly are people whose market niche is, we'll tell you that it's okay to pay this ransom. Uh, I don't think they're going to last really long in the ecosystem, but they are there. I, what this latest piece of activity combined does is it says not only can't you pay certain ransomware players, the North Koreans, etc., but you can't pay it through certain of the exchanges. So it just makes it even more complicated, not impossible, more complicated to pay. Which is good because let's face it, the for any individual actor, their optimal strategy is often to pay, especially with how badly some of the insurance companies have set things up. But from a societal viewpoint, we don't want to pay a dime. So I'm not sure whether we don't want to pay a dime, but we the, the more we can raise the cost so that it, it it's expensive for the people who are paying, but not in money that helps the ransomware guys, the more we reduce the overall revenue to, to the gangs. And the, that means there's less incentive for them to invest in a new attacks. I agree with you. So what do you think about the, the, the Chinese solution, which is just to say, nope, cut it off. There won't be any ransom or any crypto uh, transactions in China which uh, happy dance, happy dance. I'm actually agreeing with uh, Winnie the Pooh for once. So <laughs> China is worried about what is really financial asbestos. There are people who go, but you can't ban cryptocurrency because you can't ban math, but you never said you can't ban asbestos because you can't ban chemistry. Now, at heart, there is no economic value in the space. So it's fundamentally zero sum. So every dollar made in the cryptocurrency space came at the expense of somebody else. So it's gambling, not investing. But it's worse because the perk system causes this huge sucking sound of money that gets uh, burned up uh, coal-fired smokestacks and heats the atmosphere. What ends up happening is the space is just a natural Ponzi scheme overlaid with a lot of explicit Ponzi schemes and other scams. So it really is financial asbestos. And China right now is worried because they're looking already at a significant contagion crisis with their Evergrande bubble and that Ponzi scheme that it turns out they were running and the like. And so they're acting to forestall what will be a potentially, they're, they're basically trying to make sure that that particular brand of financial asbestos doesn't get into the larger ecosystem and they're trying to cut it off now. 
All right. Okay, uh, Nick, it's so great to have you back. Uh, and I'm delighted we, we, we'll get you on soon because we're going to uh, do a couple of uh, shows on Tuesdays uh, when your uh, teaching schedule lets you be on. So I'm looking forward to, to talking to you maybe even next week. Cool. Uh, uh, and thanks for uh, stepping in to do a kind of sack dance over cryptocurrency while you had the chance. Uh, and now let's move on. Maury, you know a lot about what's happening in China, and you've probably followed some of the uh, cryptocurrency efforts. Do you agree that this is China's response to an energy crisis and that the maybe the even more important thing is uh, the U.S. sanctioning of all the parties who are crucial to making the Bitcoin economy, especially the underground economy, work? I don't think it's an energy crisis. You know, I mean, Bitcoin uses a, a fair amount of energy, but China doesn't have a, a problem with energy. I think it's more about the control issues that we see in China, where they're going after Alibaba and to a lesser extent, Tencent and, you know, other other things. You know, the killer app for crypto is is payments outside the ordinary financial system. The Chinese don't like that. And I think they're trying to to uh, shut that down, and they've done it in a rather spectacular fashion. Yeah, I, I, I you know, there it was. It was the last place where the Ira Magaziner consensus reigned that we should let the tech companies build the new world that we're going to embrace. They've clearly moved away from that, and so has the U.S. in pretty much every respect. Any thoughts on the sanctioning of the cryptocurrency money laundering uh, sites? Well, I mean. Crypto is, you know, it's a bit of hucksterism and and the killer app is money laundering. I and with the market valued at two trillion, which is starting to be some real money, you can't see the world's governments allowing it to continue to grow until it becomes destabilizing. You know, it's hard to imagine it ten times that size. So at some time point, people were gonna step in and start to regulate this because of the criminal activity and the financial effects. And it's it's not surprising to me to see, you know, that one of the nastier exchanges in Russia being being sanctioned. It's interesting that the Bitcoin price didn't fall very much when China took its actions and these sanctions came down. And I was at a garden party on Saturday where some Chinese people news uh, who I know say, well, they're still trading over VPN. So it's a little hard to see um, where this w is going. But if I were to bet between the world's governments and, and the crypto enthusiasts, I think I would still bet on government. All right. So, well, as we heard, Nick thinks that the, the reason the Bitcoin price didn't uh, fall is because it's being artificially held up by uh, uh, a handful of uh, traders. But uh, I, 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 I'm inclined to think it's that Chinese traders have found ways around the ban because that's what you do in China. All right. Let's go to what I think is the big story of the week. And it's a story that was easy to miss because it was so long. The Wall Street Journal did an, a series of stories pulled from files that were leaked to them and which are now being leaked elsewhere to the to the to Congress about problems that the that Facebook has had trying to moderate content, deal with uh, misinformation, deal with trafficking of individuals, deal with the impact of Instagram on kids' self-image. It was a, 
a kind of smorgasbord of things that can go wrong on the uh, internet that Facebook is going to take the blame for. That would be my quick summary of, of the story. But it was a deep dive using Facebook's own data. Adam, uh, what can you give us a, a bit more of an overview of the stories and then what they tell us? Well, I think they go to you know, some of the real tensions that Facebook is, is facing and working through in, in its new role or not so new role is, as the arbiter of, of what can be said and thought in, in today's world. And also, I think the Instagram um, posting and, and the reaction public and, and politicians could harbor a, a new sort of avenue of regulation that a lot of people have been calling for. So, I mean, talking a little bit about the... Um, so the Instagram story was basically that teenage girls feel more bad about themselves when they spend a lot of time on Instagram because Instagram features a lot of their friends and alleged peers looking better than they do, having more fun than they do, being more popular than they are. And so they end up, in some cases, clinically depressed. Right. But, you know, this is not news. I mean, certainly, you know, the great social psychologist at NYU, Jonathan Haidt, has been recording, has been writing about this for a decade now. If you look at you know, the data, it's, it's quite, quite compelling. This generation is the most emotionally fragile. It is the, the, the highest user of psychotropic drugs to deal with depression and all sorts of mental illness. It has obesity problems. It has uh, sex problems in the sense that they're just not dating each other and doing things that normal 17-year-olds at least, you know. <laughs> so this is a sex problem as I would have defined it at the age of 17. There's not enough of it. <laughs> yes, exactly. Right. Exactly. And, but, but this is a, I mean, this is an issue that people knew about. It's a real, uh, it, the social you know, platforms have taken a real psychological toll on children. And, uh, you know, a lot of people have been jumping up and down for a long time about this. And, uh, you know, I think finally, for whatever reason, you know, the stars aligned and people got upset about it or are beginning to. And they're upset about their, they, you know, it, it is, it, if you go online, this is going to happen to you. You don't have to go on Facebook or Instagram. Uh, you're going to get abused and you're going to see a bunch of people presenting themselves in the best possible light. And you're going to wonder what's wrong with your life inevitably. But it probably is the case that when you're an adolescent and especially an adolescent girl, I'm guessing, you're uniquely sensitive to feeling all those things and you have fewer reserves to draw on. But you know, Facebook found this problem and they did something, but it wasn't very effective to try to address it. I, it it's kind of hard to know why are we mad at Facebook about this? Well, we shouldn't, well, we should be mad at ourselves. You know, I think, you know, social media is like that. I mean, you know, it, it is a reflection of us. Yeah, at some degree, it's a projection. We have, we've ignored this issue. You know, I, I like to think, you know, when I first started out as a communications lawyer, I worked with the broadcasters dealing with violence on television. How 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 quaint does that sound yes. in the 1990s? And, you know, you deal with all these, you know, sociological, psychological evidence that, oh, you know, you expose elementary school boys to Starsky and Hutch and they get in fights in the playground. And, you know, there was a real concern and people were really interested in how media affects children. Social media, we've just sort of We've ignored it. And, well, and now, and now we're not. Now, now it's it's clear yeah. we're uh, it's, it's, all those chickens are coming home to roost, and Pariah Magazine is out permanently uh, <laughs> uh, as a, a prognosticator. But I I do think that this is 
you know, as somebody who grew up with the internet, one of the funnier jokes was the guy who's staying up late into the night because, oh my God, there's somebody on the internet who's wrong. Uh, <laughs> and I can't go to bed yet. I, and, and you know, the internet is full of people being people. Now that Facebook is making money off it, we want to blame fa- Facebook for people being people. I, and the problem is Facebook has tools that are you know, kind of, they're not completely useless for addressing these things. You know, they they can take down, there's a lot of talk about human traffickers and drug traffickers using Facebook and not getting taken down because they're in third world countries and they're speaking a language other than English. And so Facebook's moderators aren't very good at finding them. So if they hired enough people, they could find more of this. They'll never stop it. But we we seem to have decided that they should be strictly liable for anything bad that happens on the Facebook version of the internet, which is just kind of weird. Well, right. I mean, I, I and I think in general, you know, what happens when you get these, especially when children are involved, is you get these, you know, regulatory, you know, hysterias where, of course, you go to the opposite direction. And you're right, people are people. I mean, it's the same thing with, you know, hate crimes or violence. And, you know, it's just like, well, people are hateful before the internet and they were violent before the internet. I mean, I, I, I think the, the psychological evidence, at least the, the stuff that I've read, suggests that the, the form itself, something that you were getting at, uh, Stuart, uh, is extra conducive to these sort of, you know, emotional unhappy, you know, unsettledness. Um, yeah, you, you, have a, you, have a, you have an actual quantification of just how unpopular you yes, are. Yes, exactly. <laughs> and, you know, no one likes your statements. You know, you look, you, you know, you look fat in that picture. People make fun of you. And, you know, and, and we've heard about this for a long time, you know, cyberbullying, things like that. Schools have taken a more active role. But, you know, you know, Jonathan Haidt says, you know, we should not allow children under the ages of 14 to have accounts. I mean, I think one of the interesting things from a sort of unfair trade practice is, you know, we allow these 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 social media firms to essentially market to our children. It's sort of like a cyber Joe Camel, and we've we've ignored it, and we wouldn't ignore it in other contexts. Why that is, I don't I don't quite know. I mean, I think people like it. They thought it was cool. They thought it was progressive. They thought it was something good. Maybe we're reconsidering it. Well, maybe you know, I, it, Silicon Valley is full of people who made a, a, a hundreds of millions of dollars on the internet who won't let their kids use social media. I, right. I, that's completely understandable. It is a kind of mildly addictive if you're not paying attention, uh, and and in a, a way that makes you feel crappy an hour and a half later. So, uh, and uh, look, there, it is a universal truth that you really do not want to know what other people think of you. None of them think as well of you as you do. And right. it's, it's, it's a bruising experience to get that in uh, anonymous uh, comments. So a couple of other things that were in this story, Facebook had has a, a system for essentially dealing with the political flack that they get and maybe the commercial flack they get when they take a very high profile person and apply their algorithms for stopping hate speech and the like to them in ways that look stupid when those people use their platform to complain about it, or which is politically dangerous uh, when, say, Trump complains about it. And so they, they just created this system in which those folks will have to be reviewed by a a human being 
which means that many of their posts just stay up forever because nobody gets around to, uh, to doing it. I, the Wall Street Journal treats this as a shocking cave into the yeah. elite. Uh, there's there's, there's gambling something. going on in Facebook. Yeah, shocking. exactly. <laughs> I, you kind of would say, what did you expect them to do? You beat the crap out of them. I'm sure that the Wall Street Journal and Rupert Murdoch are, are, are on that list. <laughs> yes, right. Exactly. No, and also, I mean, you know, there's the financial aspect to it. I mean, those people are the ones that attract a lot of users to the platform, so you don't want them to be kicked off. Yeah, I, I, I mean, I thought one of the interesting aspects of this, I mean, besides the fact of where's the news here, of course, is the reaction between them and their oversight board. And, uh, you know, the oversight board, you know, at least according to, to some of the articles, was very, you know, harumphy and upset and, and because they look like chumps. And, you know, it's sort of... Well, the, and part of it was because Facebook had told the oversight board that they didn't have data about some of the things that some of the operations of this whitelist. And then it turned from the leaked documents that the Wall Street Journal published that they did. And so now the oversight board is saying, well, were you lying then? Or are you lying now? You're going to have to tell us about this. And Facebook is also being called to testify on the Hill about what they're going to do to protect teenage girls from a bad body image. You know, the oversight board at the end of the day is just, it's created by Facebook, funded by Facebook. Right. They they will ask an awkward question or two. I, I, I'm not sure where this goes other than Facebook will say, oh, I'm sorry, that was a mistake and we'll be done. Right. I mean, you know, I, I the face, you know, the oversight board, I, I mean, I think it's, it, it's more harm than good in the, in the sense that it does create this image of some sort of, you know, judicial process when in fact, you know, it, it seems to be, you know, as you said, I mean, their salaries are paid by Facebook and, and that, that sort of tells you everything. On the other hand, they do at least have to appear to be, you know, little, little cyber Solons and Lysergases. So, you know, th and that's what this instance sort of this is tailor made for that, isn't it? This is yes, they, exactly. they get to 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 to, to harumph about uh, exactly. uh, not having right. been uh, told candidly what was going on, but they're not going to punish Facebook. They're just right. going to harumph about it. Yeah, I think that's probably exactly. Right. So it was a sort of, you know, a, a kabuki drama, but I mean, it's sort of inevitable and, and, and sort of like the, the list itself, sort of very expected. <laughs> so I, th I think we're going to hear more about this. I thought that the stories that came out of this, they do give you a, a feel for how painful it is to, to have the responsibilities that, that a lot of people think Facebook should have and that Facebook itself has accepted, they're always going to be wrong. You know, Mark Zuckerberg said nine out of 10 of our decisions are right, which is probably extraordinarily generous. But that means 10% of them are right, are wrong and they're making millions every day. Uh, it, it seems to me that this whitelist, what's really about is these are people who we have exempted from having their lives and their speech determined by AI algorithms. And increasingly, all of future life will be struggling to get to the tier where you don't get your fate determined by the algorithm and where yeah. you can actually talk to somebody who will actually think about your situation. And and so this is the beginning of the the elite being being actually named. If we knew who was on that list, the million, two million people on that list, we would know who the future glitterati will be. <laughs> yeah, you're particularly dystopian this this Monday. I am. <laughs> <laughs> 
but but yeah, I mean, uh, I, I I think that's what you know. Technology. There are all these weird sort of aristocracies. I have a friend who's a uh, police officer, and his his uh, license plate is not in the you know the state identifier. Oh, so, sure. Yeah, so you know, you see cropped up all all things. But yeah, you know, I mean, from my perspective, you know, this is just another argument for maybe Facebook should get out of the world government business. And it's um, very hard. But <laughs> they're being dragged in. In fact, Maury, I wanted to talk to you about this. There, there's going to be a meeting in Pittsburgh of the EU Tech Council in which they're going to look for ways in which they can coordinate their tech policy. And the memo leaked, which says we, we already agreed on coordination in a few areas like uh, the responsibility of online intermediaries to safeguard democratic processes from the impact of their business activities and uh, areas of common ground include content moderation and fair competition. So these are this is basically the Biden administration trying to internationalize its agenda with a pretty willing partner in the European Union. They're going to have four years of of making of of ramping up the pressure on all of social media to do more content moderation in uh safeguarding democratic processes yeah i agree i mean i think it's a win-win from a big picture policy perspective for the u.s and the eu for biden he gets a european partner for his agenda it's also a counterweight to china and the eu leadership has been talking about this council as the EU joining the US as a counterweight to China, even though the French are pissed off over the Australia submarine deal, they've explicitly said, we got to get over that. We're together against China. So I think there's a lot of policy commonality about this. And, you know, as we were discussing, Stuart, both the US and the EU are saying they're going after big tech now. Um, We've talked a long time on this podcast about it being a European thing to go after big tech, but it's not only now. Not anymore. No, it's a Chinese thing. It's an American thing. It's a Canadian thing. It's like everybody's thing. Yeah. Well, look, everybody hates them because one, they, they have tended to support insurgents because insurgents are the ones who can't get their message out through establishment means. And then the governments who are threatened by those insurgents, especially in the EU and the US, start beating up, start hating on Facebook because the insurgents seem to be using social media effectively. So the insurgents hate them because they are now responding to governments by uh, trying to shut down the insurgents. And the established government hates them because they allowed the insurgents to get a taste of popularity. So yeah, they they they, they, they can't win this. And the US-EU Tech Council is going to instantiate that into a, a transatlantic policy. Okay. And I think the, the bigger discussion we're going to have over the coming years is what do you do? You know, U.S. Some people in the U.S. like to say break them up. In the EU, they have a regulatory approach. Been reading some interesting stuff from Cory Doctorow on interoperability as the solution. So, yeah. So actually, Adam Adam has a solution. He he wrote a brief for J.D. Vance, famous for his book about uh, culture in the white Appalachian uh, uh, mountains and sort of the white underclass, and now running for the Senate in Ohio. He's stepped into an Ohio lawsuit designed to turn Google into a common carrier. And, you know, part of me wants to say, 
Boy, nobody deserves it more than Google, who has been spending <laughs> 10 years saying net neutrality is what we want. We need to make sure that all of the people that we depend on to get our message out are unable to discriminate against us. Uh, and now to have the shoe on the other foot is kind of amusing. But I, uh, uh, tell me, Adam, what's the basic theory of this lawsuit and the brief you filed? Yeah, so it, it, common carriage is actually a, a doctrine that came from the common law originally. It was you know, taken over in the early part of the 20th century by regulatory entities, but it started out being court-made, judge-made law. And in some states, court, you know, if you do the research, some courts have maintained and kept that power. And Ohio is one of those states. So, you know, you, you know as someone who actually enjoys and has written about you know 19th century common carriage law. This is this this has been a delight to, to to write about because all of a sudden these obscure cases that nobody cares about have you know, emerged. Is so, <laughs> so the, is there a is there a standard for what makes you a common carrier, or is it a question? Because if, if it's a policy question, should we make Google a common carrier? It's a hard and interesting question. I cannot imagine it's a legal question. Well, so that, that, that you, you put your finger on it. You know, in, in the famous Munn v. Illinois case in the Supreme Court, there was a dissent by Justice Field who, you know, derisively queried the majority, you know, why, why are railroads and, and green elevators common carriers, but not city mansions and the providers of silk calico gowns? <laughs> so I don't know. But, but no, th- th- there's been a whole, you know, industry for the last hundred years of sort of identifying, you know, those types of industries that, you know, have market power play a sort of pivotal bottleneck role and and also you know going back to the old common law you know hundreds of years ago offer a uniform service to all as opposed to a particularized contractual service and so you know it's it's a fuzzy category but you know if if you look at the cases you know they sort of make sense i mean they're they're dominant communications and transportation network industries that tend to be common carriers. And, and, and you know, it's funny thing is Ohio, due to its strange tax law and zoning law, has a, a sort of an evolved jurisprudence on, on what, what is a, a common carrier. That's, that's yeah. really interesting because yeah, I think you're, you're right. You could certainly, you, if you're willing to use the test of dominance in antitrust law, which it makes sense to say at some level of dominance, we want to regulate you because we don't think the market is regulating you. Right. If that's the basic theory, yeah, this is this is plausible. Why did the attorney general bring this lawsuit instead of trying to get a bill through the Ohio legislature? Well, I, I guess he thought it would be more likely to win. Okay. <laughs> and then um, I take it J.D. Vance is basically picking up the the mantle that Senator Hawley is, is, has also been carrying of, I'm going to be the guy who for cultural reasons, attacks Silicon Valley because they are censoring people who are feeling unrepresented since Trump left office. Right. And, and also, you know, uh, Holly did it with the, the Claremont Institute and Representative Swergen, who is a legislator. And, and, and yes, I mean, Claremont is very much on the, we have to reign in big tech if we want to preserve traditional American freedoms and values. And do you know who the judge is? Do we have any idea whether this is something that the judge might actually find attractive or whether he's going to look, he or she is going to look for a way to get rid of it? 
No, you know, it, Ohio is a small state and close, closely knit legal community. We'll see what happens. <laughs> All right. Uh, well, so could be a, a stealth problem for, for social media, which is busily fighting. I think they've not now announced that they're going to fight Texas's. They filed the PI last week. I, I, I just saw it. So. Yeah. Okay. So it's all, it, it, it's all going to be litigation all the time. And so the social media companies have enough money to fight every, every single attorney general in the, the country for a mm, hundred years, more or less. All right. Let's go to another form of government intervention in the market, which is brand new or close to new, which is uh, industrial policy where it's back and back with a, a vengeance in part because of the chip shortage that is forcing automakers basically to leave cars 98% finished, but sitting on the lot because they don't have chips. And uh, the White House uh, is calling meetings saying, how are we going to fix this problem? We can't have people laid off because of a chip shortage. And, I, you know, my, my sense is the companies, the chip companies are saying, hey, look, the, the, the automobile industry is always squeezing people and they've been squeezing the chip makers by saying, we don't want a new chip. We want the old chip. It, it's been approved by regulators. It works and it's cheap. Just keep making those. And the chip makers say, we can't make any money making those. We want to sell you the latest and greatest. And therefore, we're going to sell our chips first to the people who are paying the most for them. And that's not you. The White House response has been to say, you know, we have the authority to order you allocate your chip sales. And it is now through the Commerce Department, Secretary Raimondo, suggesting that it may start using the Defense Production Act, which it also famously used to get ventilators built and allocated uh, during the COVID crisis. So we're starting to see just how hard industrial policy can be. It's, it's, it's going to be fascinating to watch because uh, once you step in to screw with the market, it's like stepping in to correct what's wrong with the internet. So you never get out. And I fear the government has bitten off a really big and unchewable chunk of uh, responsibility for the economy. So we'll see. All right. Speaking of regulating stuff that no one would have regulated before Ira Magazine or, uh, uh, got uh, defenestrated, uh, <laughs> uh, there's California has just passed a law saying you can't have a productivity quota in <clears throat> warehouses. Cough, cough on Amazon, Amazon. A, a, and basically it, if I read the law right, Maury, it says you can't have a productivity quota that requires people not to have time to go to the bathroom or to follow the safety procedures, which is kind of guarantees that practically every case goes to the jury because, you know, the the guy who brings the lawsuit, the plaintiff, the worker is going to say, I didn't have time to go to the bathroom. People are going to say, really? 20 minutes wasn't enough? And he's going to say, well, I'm slow, but I couldn't. Or they were watching me. Or I skipped this uh, this safety procedure because I was running late and I knew they were looking over my shoulder. I, I don't know how you enforce this except just by having massive amounts of litigation. Yeah, well, I, I had the same reaction after I thought it was interesting that Gavin Newsom signed this just after he succeeded in the recall election. But the law does a few things. It requires disclosure of the productivity quotas. So it helps the workers know at least to what quota they're working. That I think does do something. 
maybe facilitates these disputes. It also says that the the metrics can't uh, discourage state mandated breaks. So that one's a little easier to do. Maybe you can't have a formula that calculates the time during the break. But I agree with you for the other two bits about you know discouraging going to the bathroom and health and safety laws. It's a pretty soft standard. So, and I, I, I want to tie this into the AI stories because I think this is part of the problem here is this is, I'm sure that these algorithms have an element of machine learning built into them, looking at how fast other people are going and using that as a, a benchmark for how fast you should be going. A comparison here to having a job in which you are overseen by an algorithm uh, is a sign that you are not on the two million person Facebook list of elites. And this is an effort to kind of push people out of that status, uh, uh, is, is my guess. But how do you explain the quota when it is basically made by a machine that can't explain itself? Well, it's a huge problem. And, you know, we were looking at for this week at uh, toxic language models. And there's an interesting study that's just come out that says, well, OpenAI has basically done a study where they say you, you can't really detoxify these things without losing a lot of the data because they learn from the data. And the people you're most worried about toxic language about are often uh, marginalized groups. And, you know, these days, even talking about a marginalized group is a problem. So you, how much stuff do you exclude? Yeah, of course, or, when and, they say marginalized groups, they mean racial and ethnic and gender and sexual minorities. They don't mean Trump voters. You can say anything you want about Trump voters. <laughs> I guess. But so, you know, it's very hard to do. And humans are biased. The, the problem with these things are humans are biased. The machines you can tweak the bias a little bit better, but we don't seem to be willing to tolerate even you know reduced bias from machines if it's if it's tweaked. So it's it's a very hard problem. I, I have a piece that I've submitted to Lawfare in which I basically debunk a lot of the AI bias studies, which are mostly stu studies that show that if you applied strict quotas to uh, racial and ethnic and other and gender quotas to outcomes, AI models often don't meet those quotas, uh, which is no surprise. Life doesn't meet those quotas, but uh, it's treated as a shocking example of bias when the AI does it, even though we accept it when real life does it. Uh, and the effort to solve the problem has basically been imposing academic political correctness quotas on whatever outcome the AI is trying to achieve. And so you get AI-optimized quota systems, but they're still quota systems. And I think what you're getting with this detoxification of language is AI-optimized politically correct language, which it turns out a lot of people, when they read it, say, I, th th there's, there's something wrong with this, with this language. Yeah, absolutely. And, and, you know, what is acceptable changes fairly often. And you've got to really have your finger on the pulse of what's acceptable to get this right. If the AI looks at two years of data, it's, it's pretty likely to, you know, to pull in the old um, conventional paradigm. Yeah, exactly. It's very it's, hard. It's, it's, you go back two years, uh, people were misgendering each other left and right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So I, I agree with you. It's all connected and it's really hard to know what the solution is, except 
to say we're early days on this. It's important to talk about these issues and figure out a way through. Them. And you know, AI is in early days. So there, this will look very different in a couple of years, and not just from the AI's perspective. Yeah. All right. Let's let, let's let's wrap this up with three or four updates or quick hits. We've already covered the the Texas lawsuit. Zoom is in trouble. They tried to buy. They're trying to buy a company called Five Nine. And the government has publicly announced that they're examining the deal because they're worried about Zoom's ties to China. It's not, a, strictly speaking, a Chinese-controlled company. It uh, is very heavily reliant on Chinese tech and uh, Chinese management, I think. And it looks as though the Justice Department and the CFIUS and Team Telecom experts have figured that out and are taking a very close look at this deal. Uh, we'll see if Zoom ends up with a black eye as a result. If you remember last week, we talked about the Project Raven uh, guys. These are the American hackers who went to work for the UAE. They were indicted. They entered into a deferred prosecution agreement. I thought it meant they wouldn't work in their chosen field ever again. Boy, was I wrong. Turns out ex ExpressVPN had hired one of them and he had worked his way up because he's obviously a talented guy to be CTO. <laughs> when the news broke that he'd been doing this stuff for the UAE, lots of press hand-wringing and employee hand-wringing at ExpressVPN. So we'll see how that uh, plays out. Uh, Dmitry Alperovich, one of our treasured contributors, uh, has a great piece in the New York Times that I just wanted to uh, name check on what we ought to do uh, to end or at least bring ransomware under control. And he basically says the Biden administration hasn't done enough and it's time to start using the cyber command and other capabilities to wipe out the funds of and dox the, the management of these ransomware gangs. That's it for... Um, episode 376. I want to thank Adam and Maury and Nick. Before closing, I just want to say, send your comments to cyberlawpodcast at steptoe.com. Give us a rating. Well, I promised to read the reviews that we got. Here's one, which I think is fair, gave us five stars to ease the pain and then said, please tell your guests that the Casablanca gambling joke is so great, which I think is fair. So that was uh, Xiangji18 and Xiangji18. You're right. I'll, I'll bring you up the next time it comes up, which I kind of guarantee will be in the next six months. Uh, Okay, uh, thanks to Weissman Sound Design for our music. This has been episode 376 of the Cyber Law Podcast, brought to you by Steptoe and Johnson.